Scripture reading today is from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, or is it verses 1 through 7? 1 through 8. Yes, it is. <laughs> All right. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Well, we, uh, we live in unprecedented times, don't we? This is unusual. We could all own up to that. This is not, uh, two weeks ago, this is not what I was expecting, to be standing in the living room of our office with 20 close friends and those of you on, on your computers in your living rooms. This is not what I expected, and, and this is the very tip of the iceberg, as we all know. It has been an unexpected several weeks that what started several weeks ago, watching like a little wave way out on the horizon, we started to hear about this coronavirus, COVID-19 that started to spread. And there's a certain amount of compassion, if not curiosity, confusion about what was going on in China and then what's going on in different places. And we were tracing it and sending a team to India and wondering, are they going to be okay? These, these distant thoughts about what's going on on the other side of the globe, what was a small, seeming, distant reality started to swell and to grow and to crest and to crash over our heads into this place where life as we know it right now is being significantly altered. There are so many unanswered questions. Over the last week, we have seen as in the United States and across our city that there are cases of coronavirus, but then also all the ramifications, all the ways that it touches as, as all of a sudden the stocks spiral and the forecast for businesses change dramatically. The ways that people woke up with a certain control and security and confidence about their job security and their retirement and their net worth and what's coming next. And all of a sudden, lots and lots and lots of questions that everyone thought they had real clear answers to were no longer clear. Felt like they were changing day to day. And here we stand. This isn't just localized. This isn't just Houston and it isn't just the United States. Right now, the globe 
responding to an unexpected and communal confusion. This is where we live today. It is not what we were expecting to be wrestling with the implications of the people. And so the question is, how are we supposed to respond to this experience? What do you do in the face of confusion and challenge and unknown even the word pandemic, you know, you, you turn on the news and you see the map and blinking red lights and this number of cases and this number feels like it's, it feels like we're living in a movie. It doesn't feel real, you know? And the question is, as the people of God in the face of a moment like this, how do we respond? What do we do? Uh, and I, I, in an attempt to discern God's heart and his word in the midst of this. I want to run to a moment, a moment scripturally where there was significant communal confusion, where there were a lot of questions, there was unknown, and the way that God revealed himself to restore clarity. What we're going to see is that in the midst of communal confusion, a glory vision gives personal clarity and purpose. What we're going to see in this text is there is general there is general communal confusion but where someone was able to see God to see him clearly to see him in the midst of what felt like unruly communal confusion what comes out on the other end is personal clarity and purpose and so my hope today is for us together to see God as we open his word, we, we have this confidence as a people that when we open the Bible, God opens his mouth. And he opens his mouth this morning and he speaks through a prophet some 26, 2700 years ago. I believe that we'll see how in the midst of communal confusion, a glory vision gives us personal purpose, gives us personal clarity. So the passage that we've had read is from Isaiah chapter 6. I want to start in verse 1 and pay attention to the communal confusion that Isaiah and the people of God are living in. We get it in verse 1a, and these simple words carry a lot of freight. We can miss this. We can feel like this is just some sort of introductory language that could say, like, it was October or it was 1984. This isn't, this isn't what's happening here. Isaiah is setting a context, a context of communal unrest and of confusion. In chapter 6, verse 1a, it says this, in the year that King Uzziah died. We can read about this in the history of Israel. We know about this from 2 Chronicles 26, and we know that this carried a lot of freight. Uzziah was king for 52 years. 52. And as king in 52 years, he established some of the greatest prosperity that the people of God ever knew. He had more victories. He won victories of the Philistines. He pushed enemies that had been present for the Jewish people since their founding. And he began to establish peace. And they had new cities being extended into, uh, into enemy territory that had previously not been able to be occupied. There was progress. We read in 2 Chronicles 26 about this idea that he had new inventions that provided safety and security for the people, machines that worked on the walls of cities to be able to defend them, new inventions that all of a sudden people were going, wow, who's this guy Uzziah? He's noted as being famous. His reign was marked by glory. And he reigned for 52 years. 
prosperity, victory, stability, progress. And imagine this, 52 years with him on the throne. What this means is most everyone who lived in the realm of God's people, they didn't know what it was to exist without him on the throne. The majority of the people who were living, he was the only king that the majority of the people had ever known for 52 years. And so when Isaiah starts by saying it was the year that King Uzziah died, what he's saying is it was the year when everybody was wondering, what are we going to do? It was the year when everybody who'd experienced victory and stability and progress and prosperity was going, what happens if all of it evaporates? He was saying it was in the year where we didn't identity anymore. Who are we as a people if he is not on the throne? You see what he's saying is it was the year when all the things that we thought we knew, we weren't sure we knew anymore. The passage is communal unrest, confusion, the wheels feeling like they're coming off. I think in many ways we could read this as in the year that corona came. You know, it's, it's, it's a setting, it's a context. The reason that what Isaiah is about to experience has power and purpose is because he knows his people don't know how to answer the basic questions of life in the way that they did yesterday or the week before, the month before. You see, if you've been watching the news, what we know is that fear and anxiety sells. It keeps people turning in. We live in a moment of unknown. So many questions that we feel like we had really confident answers to a month ago, we don't know. And when we wrestle, well, what's it gonna be like? All we know to do is to keep scrolling. I don't know, honestly, that the, the confession of sin that we shared together today struck a little too close to home. How many times I've checked, just going, well, I wonder if there's like a new news story that gives me some clarity. Like, it's like I'm grasping for how many times have we refreshed the news? And then we start going, well, okay, what, what can I make sense? Because I just don't know. Are we all just overreacting? You know, everybody's had that question. Everybody has an opinion. And so I hear that. I have all of these conversations with people about, well, we're overreacting. We're underreacting. We really need to do this. We need to do that. Ashley was walking through Target looking for, you know, the basics, which slowly it's odd how we even define that. What's the deal with the run on toilet paper? You know, like... There's just, this, there's just this odd thing of like, we're just looking for something to give us a sense of control. And while she was walking in Target, the woman on the aisle next to her said, well, I just heard they're about to shut down the power to conserve energy. There's gonna be no power in Houston. So don't buy stuff that needs to go in the refrigerator, the freezer, you gotta buy dried beans and rice. And we're like, what is going on? The fear and the anxiety, and the unrest, and the unknown. Everybody has an opinion, and nobody's really clear. And so we just keep refreshing. We keep purchasing. We're trying to... You see, when he says, in the year King Uzziah died, he's saying it was in the year of communal unrest. It was in the year when we didn't have good answers to the questions. It was in the year when, when I walked the aisles at Target, I heard things and thought, is that real? Is that true? I don't... I don't rightly know anymore. And into this space, what God is going to do through the prophet Isaiah for the good of his people, I believe he wants to do through you, through the men and the women that are tasting and experiencing his grace. I think this is what he wants to do in us 
because of his concern and his care for the people all across the city and all across the globe. To the backdrop of communal confusion, the great gift of God is a glory vision. Eyes to see the king. Read with me, with this context, verse 1b through 4, what is it that Isaiah gets to see? He says, I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their face and with two, they covered his feet and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. You see, he gets a glory vision. He gets to have the veil pulled back to see what is actually happening. And the moment where everyone is asking, who is going to be on the throne? Who's going to make everything right? Isaiah says, I saw and I know who's on the throne. It's the Lord. And there's this interesting thing that this is an explanation of a vision of God. Now, I just read it to you. Scroll back through. You may be looking at it there in front of you in your scriptures or on the screen. What does God look like? This is a vision of God. What did he see? There's nothing actually about seeing God. Isn't this interesting? Because you can't. It's like staring directly at the sun. I want you to feel this vision as if Isaiah is cowering and covering his eyes and it's like he's looking up and he's seeing angels hovering over above and then he's looking down and he's seeing the train of his robe and then he's seeing the the thresholds of the temple shake and there's smoke billowing but he can't look on God like staring right at the sun. He can't fully take in his glory that even though this is a vision of God, All he can see is everything that's happening around him. It's too glorious. It's too great. But what he does say is this. Someone is on the throne and he's calling the shots. He says, I couldn't fully look into it, but this is the deal. He's high and he's lifted up. This is thoroughly Isaiah language. This he uses all throughout the book, continuing to say high and lifted up. It means the position of authority. It means sovereign. A king doesn't wait for the vote to come in. He's not taking a poll of his people and going, I don't know, does the the majority in favor or not? The sovereign has total authority over his reign, over his rule. His word goes, and what Isaiah is saying is the Lord is on the throne, and he's high and lifted up. He has profound and divine authority. That this recognition we know biblically, Old Testament and New, if we were to pay attention to what it means that he is high and lifted up and sovereign, what we would say is that there is not a sparrow that falls to the ground without the knowledge, oversight, love, and control of God. That he is total control and overseeing the number of hairs on your head. And the Proverbs even say, when the die is cast, even the number on the die is caused by the sovereign care of God. There is nothing, biblically speaking, outside of the reign and the authority and the control of the one who's on the throne. And Isaiah is saying, when everything felt out of control, this is what I saw. He's high and he's lifted up. K. 
Can you feel the weight of it in the soul of the prophet? To say nothing escapes his sight. The authority. He has control over what's happening in our city and our world. We have been preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes for months, wrestling with this reality that we are east of Eden and we live in a land that is infested by fog, by vapor. It feels like it's slipping through our fingers. And in this space, what we have realized is that we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised by an unknown pandemic that shows up. We go, well, yeah, we live in a foggy world. Confusion, unknown, unrest, that's what it means to live in a broken world. Yes, we were prepared for that because the word of God has told us that's the case. But in and through and above it all, what we're reading is this, God's authority even over the fog. He has authority even over the confusion. And for that reason, what we see in this glory vision is that he is worthy of worship. Did you hear it? I love what the angels are doing in this space, that they are covering their eyes because they too can't look fully into the face of God. They're covering their feet as if to say, not worthy to be seen in his presence. And as they fly about him, what they're calling out is holy, 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 holy. We get it three there, but it's really just the eternal rhythm of the angels in his presence going other. There's nothing in all the created order that's like you. Nothing has your power and majesty and beauty that causes me to quake in your presence. These are the same angels. What do the angels say? What's the first thing an angel says every time it shows up with humanity? Don't be afraid. Don't be terrified. Why? Because everyone who sees an angel is terrified. They're so frightening. They're so stunning. The first thing an angel always says, don't, don't, fear not, fear not. Because to show up, men and women fall like dead men before angels. John, the one that Jesus loved in the book of Revelation, when the angels show up over and over, he keeps getting down and tries to worship. And the angel says, stop, don't do that. Worship him with me. Do you see that the angels that have such power and such authority that causes our souls to quake if we see them, when they're in God's presence, they just go, oh, holy, you're so other. Like they can't even look fully into his face that the one that's on the throne has such authority and power every, over every square inch that he is worthy of cosmic worship. And for that reason, they say the whole earth is full of his glory. Glory is holiness gone public, right? Like that is God's character is that he's holy and other and glory is the ways that it's, it's dripping down all around us. Have you considered this? Like if we could just get the God perspective, if we could zoom out from the globe and just lean in with an ear, you'd get like ocean waves crashing, birds chirping, the wind blowing through the trees, babies cooing, you know, the stars whirring, the galaxies being held together, people hugging and weeping and laughing, and the sound is of like a glory symphony. The beauty and the togetherness and the, the value that is spread out all across the globe, it's like little droplets of his holiness. It's his glory glory is the full, fullness of what's going on in the world. I love that uh, 
You know, Beethoven in his sixth symphony, his sixth symphony was known as the Pastoral Symphony. He finished in 1808, and the idea was that it was, it was of the nature. It was of the, the sounds of nature. And the way that he wrote this symphony, the way the story goes, is that he would go for long walks through the woods, along babbling brooks, and then he would just sit and listen. And he'd start trying to compose what would it look like? What would it sound like to lay over the babbling brook and the birds and to do so with instruments? And what you can listen to is Beethoven and something that has stood the test of time. It's still performed at symphonies all around the globe. And it's him just trying to scratch at the glory that is the created order. You see what the angels are saying is that he's so worthy of cosmic worship because he is holy, holy, holy and it's dripping down from the throne and what we see in every shred of beauty and power and everything that brings peace and joy in the created order, it's glory, it's holiness gone public. You see, the glory vision, ultimately what he's saying is that, that glory is present, it's central. The word in the Hebrew is kavod. It means heavy. It means like the real thing. It has density. And what Isaiah is experiencing is he's living in a moment of communal confusion, the year that everything felt like it was unraveling. That year, remember that year? The moment where you just couldn't refresh the news fast enough and you were worried if everything that you knew was going to come undone. He says, in that moment, this is what I saw. Glory, density, immovability, beauty, peace, power. It's central and it's raining down from on high. He's saying someone is on the throne calling the shots and he's worthy of our worship. And the beautiful reality is this, that in the backdrop of communal confusion, when we have eyes to see glory, something happens. And I want us to pay attention to this as we close. This is the personal purpose and clarity that emerges. It comes in three successive stages pretty quickly. But this is what it looks like if we are a people in the midst of communal confusion that will see God in his glory. This is what it will look like for us to have personal clarity and purpose. The first stage is this, we are undone. Did you hear it? Woe is me. Woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of all the angel armies, he says. There's this interesting thing that if you're reading this chapter in context, in chapter five, woe has been used five times already. Isaiah is actually kind of in a woe rhythm. These prophets sometimes find that space of like, woe to you, O people. And what he says is, you keep building your houses bigger and bigger and amassing your wealth. Woe to you, you're greedy. Woe to you. You chase wine and strong drink. You love a good party and you think that's what's gonna provide your joy. Woe to you. He continues to say time and again, five times over. Woe to you. Woe to you. You are calling evil good. Everything is upside down. You are wise in your own eyes. Woe to you. Isaiah has had great clarity on the brokenness that is in the system. But in the midst of communal confusion, as he gets a glory vision and he sees God, something happens. 
what he has recognized to be broken and undone in the system, he realizes is a far bigger problem and far closer to home than he ever dared imagine. You follow me? That there's a certain sense that when he all of a sudden sees God high and exalted and surrounded by angelic worship and he's going, oh, you're on the throne and you call the shots over everyone that's on the throne. That my security and my financial uh, future and my medical health and the prosperity, the culture that I live in, all of the things that have generated such anxiety and fear in my soul because I'm not sure who's on the throne, that when I see you, all of a sudden I realize, oh, I don't trust you and I don't know that I ever have. You see, what Isaiah is saying is that when the year when everything was coming undone, I came undone because I had to deal honestly with what was happening and what was honestly happening is that the brokenness was way closer to home than I thought. It's like the, the horror film from the 70s. It was called When a Stranger Calls. You know this story? It's actually been played and replayed, and so it's become like a trope that's in a lot of books and a lot of movies, but it was made famous. It was popularized in this film in the 70s. It's this girl, she's a babysitter. She's there taking care of these people's house and their kids. She's got the kids tucked in. It's late at night and the phone rings. She answers the phone. And there's this threatening voice on the other end that says, do you know if the kids are okay? Have you checked on the kids lately? And she's like, freaked out, hangs up. Like, what is that? Immediately calls the police and says, I need you to trace the last number. I'm really scared. I'm here alone. And there's, the, the, you know, whatever. I don't know. What, what do police do, right? <laughs> Uh, and then the response comes we've traced the call the caller is in the house and it's that thing where it drops in your stomach where you go oh no I was nervous like I was undone when I thought there was a threat but it's much bigger and it's much closer to home than I realized when Isaiah sees the glory of God, what he goes is, this isn't an out there issue. Like, what's being exposed by the communal confusion is I'm not actually believing what's true. God, you've always been on the throne. You've always had the authority. You have promised us. Brothers and sisters, he has promised you all things will work together for the good of those who love him or are called to it according to his purpose. Every last one of them. Until something that we didn't expect and we didn't like, and we all of a sudden, we with the rest of the world, if we're not careful, will be a part of the communal anxiety and fear going, well, I don't know. I don't know. And what he's saying is when I saw God, I realized, oh, woe is me. Woe is me. Forgive me for believing that my hope and my security was in my bank account, my job security, my health, my comfort, my control. God, forgive me. You see, the first thing that begins to breed personal clarity and purpose out of communal confusion is that we are undone when we see his glory. And then we're remade. Verse six and seven. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah needed a touch. 
he was undone. He hadn't trusted the Lord who is on the throne and the angel comes to him and with what has happened on the altar, he purifies him. He says, your sin is atoned for. You are made right by the heat of this coal. What he's doing is he's coming from the presence of God and the altar of God and saying, you need a touch from what is unfolded before God. This is a picture of the way that what happens at the altar can and does atone for our sins. It makes us right. It makes us presentable to God. I love that this is a picture of what's coming. This, this phrase that's uniquely Isaiah's that we noticed, high and lifted up in the previous verses. Here, the angel is coming to him from the presence of God and touching him. He's purifying him. Later, when, when Isaiah uses the term high and lifted up again in Isaiah 52 and verse 13, he's going to say his servant, the servant was high and lifted up. And that is what kicks off the suffering servant song at the end of 52 and 53. He's saying the one that is high and lifted up will sprinkle and purify the nations and he'll do it by being marred, stricken, smitten, afflicted. You see the one who's high and lifted up and he's calling all the shots calls his own number. He says, my people are undone. Woe to them. That is a statement of divine judgment. Woe to them, that's true. But he's saying, I will drink the woe. I will drink it down. The picture of what comes from the altar as a statement of what God is ultimately going to accomplish in the person and the work of Jesus. We're preparing ourselves to, to celebrate Easter several weeks from now. And as we think about the beauty and the power of Good Friday giving way to Sunday morning, we recognize that what God is saying is that woe is real. We are a people that struggle to trust him on the throne. We are a people of unclean lips because we give voice to our anxiety and the way that we just don't trust him and we don't think he's God over the fog. And into that space, he says, I will take all of the righteous judgment onto myself. I will pay the price so that your sin can be atoned for, so that you can be healed. And the beautiful reality is that as this dawns on Isaiah, I just want you to see how he responds in verse eight. When he realizes that he deserves woe and he gets forgiveness, that we, out of communal confusion, seeing divine glory, we realize we deserve woe, but we get forgiveness. And in verse eight, this is what happens. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Let's just pause for a second. Who is us? He has just been announced several times in the verses we've been studying as the Lord of hosts. That's the Lord of angel armies. And he is surrounded by angels that are calling out with a voice that shakes the threshold of the temple. He is surrounded by the angelic host that is powerful and strong. And he's saying, okay, here I am in my kingly courts with all of my army. And I'm wondering, who am I going to send? And this is what I need us to hear. God does not dispatch, though he could, he does not dispatch angel armies to tell everybody that it's gonna be okay, that there's a God on the throne, that there's repentance and forgiveness extended and available. He doesn't peel back the sky and do it himself with a booming voice. He doesn't do it by sending his angels to sing from the mountaintops. In the midst of the angel armies, God saying, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here I am. You can send me, which feels a bit absurd. 
Here's these angels flying. I mean, they've got wings. They've got six wings. They've got voices that can shake temples. I feel like they might be better at this job, God. I might think, uh, send that guy. He's impressive. Why does he respond that way? Because he realizes my life is not my own. What I deserve is woe. It's not mine anymore. You've purchased me. You own me. What do you want from me, God? Send me. I'll go. This is the only appropriate response to a glory vision. Undone, remade, sent. We are a people that as we recognize that in the general confusion, we have ceased to believe his power, authority, and beauty, but he still has come for us. He still loves us. And what he's saying is, as you recognize that, you're no longer your own, you're mine. Will you go for me? So I want to finish here by saying this. Seven Mile Road, you have been uniquely prepared by the grace of God for a time like this. God is tilling the soil of the soul of Houston. And what we say over and over and over is that we exist to embody and declare God's redemptive story to every Houstonian. The statement that there is one on the throne and he's made a way home for you to peace and to freedom, to wholeness. That you don't have to be afraid and you don't have to be anxious because we know who's on the throne and he loves you and he's come for you. We are a people that have said time and again that we are a decentralized family of house churches, that what we want to see is a wave of cool, refreshing grace spilling from block to block as the people of God on the mission of God believe their own identity, that we are an unanxious presence who knows the one that's on the throne, that we walk our blocks, we go to the apartment, we, we, we exist in this space saying, I'm unafraid because I have seen God. What this city needs right now is you. Salt, light, life, grace, extended by the people of God on the mission of God. I don't know what the future holds. I think it will get worse before it gets better from a human perspective. We were privy to a phone call with the head of Methodist Hospital this week, and he said likely eight weeks is a minimum. Their, their prescription, nobody really knows, that we would be able to gather together again. We don't know that. We've only said two weeks and we'll reevaluate, but what I'm hearing from the experts is it could be a lot longer. That schools may truly be closed for the rest of the school year. We don't know. We don't know. And the truth is, we are going to adjust as we go. But what I'm saying is this, Seven Mile Road has been believing our identity to be a decentralized family. And we are going to live into our identity in the coming days. We have been praying for revival. And I think this fog bank that just rolled in is part of God's answer to that question, to that pleading in our souls. I think he is designing to raise up men and women and children from death to life and he wants to do it by you. From you standing in his throne and going, I don't know, send me. That I would be part of healing and confidence and courage in this city because I have been purchased by the grace of Jesus and I am unafraid. Men and women, brothers and sisters, let us be the sort of people that in the midst of communal confusion 
we set our gaze on the glory of God. Because a glory vision brings personal clarity and purpose out of communal confusion. We want to be those sorts of people. Amen? Let me pray for us. So God, we need you. We are, have graciously been disabused of any false views that, um, that we're in control and that we can handle things. So I pray that even this morning, you would help us like Isaiah to be undone in your presence and remade by your grace and sent out into the city with a good word that we know who's on the throne and he will work all things together for the good of those that love him. We know that you're moving. Thank you in advance for the ways you're gonna use us for revival, for revival on our block, in our city, in our apartment complex. God, would you move? We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.